Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Now to Cuba, where thousands marched across several cities yesterday in some of the biggest anti-government demonstrations on the island nation in decades. As a Cuban American, I did not know that Sunday was going to be Sunday. People took to the streets, protesting food shortages and high prices as the country suffers through a crippling economic crisis, exacerbated by the pandemic. I'm Sabrina Rodriguez, an immigration correspondent at Politico. For me, the big thing to pay attention to is if these protests continue. Um, One of the frustrations, as, as a journalist, I will say, has been that the protests on Sunday were widely covered, widely publicized. I mean, there were videos all over social media. But Cuba, in its capacity as a repressive regime, has cut off the internet. So there are mass internet outages in Cuba right now to help prevent people from being able to share videos of the protests, to share intel on what's going on on the ground. I don't have anything to predict for you in terms of any policy shift. Obviously, given the protests were just happening over the last 24 to 48 hours, we're assessing how we can be helpful directly to the people of Cuba uh, in, in these circumstances. The Biden administration did not have plans to focus on Cuba policy, but has now found itself having to pay attention to Cuba policy, given that thousands of Cubans have taken to the streets to demand an end to the dictatorship. I'm Jeremy Siegel. This is Politico Dispatch. And today, Sabrina Rodriguez on the historic protests in Cuba and how they're forcing President Biden's hand on foreign policy. I mean, first and foremost, there is a 62-year-old dictatorship in Cuba. So that's important context here. But In the last few days, what we've seen is people in Cuba mobilized to unprecedented levels. It's been 27 years since Cubans protested en masse, but those demonstrations were only in Havana. So on Sunday, thousands of Cubans took to the streets across the country, not just in Havana, not just in one city, but 40 plus cities chanting Libertad, which is freedom in Spanish, to say that they want an end to the dictatorship. We're here because of the repression of the people. They are starving us to death. Havana is collapsing. We have no homes, nothing. Some of what has, you know, caused that level of desperation now, unlike in years prior, has been, you know, massive food and medicine shortages, which food and medicine shortages in Cuba is not a new concept, Mm -hmm. but it's been exacerbated by the pandemic, by a worsening economic crisis on the island and just growing frustration. So people took to the streets and we've seen in the days since that there has been some level of crackdown by the government. I mean, the day of, you know, the president of Cuba, Miguel Diaz-Canel, came out and said, you know, the order to combat has been given. Yesterday, they threw stones at police forces, turned over cars, a totally vulgar, indecent and delinquent behavior. They've gotten the response they deserved. And asked, you know, revolutionary supporters of the government to go out to the streets and reclaim the streets, sent out the special forces. There's people missing. There's people arrested. There's people that have been beaten. Uh, but people are still protesting. And, you know, it's it's a question now of whether this will actually result in change. 
given just how many decades we're talking about this dictatorship. As a Cuban-American, it's something that my family is calling me every five minutes about. So just before talking to you, it was already an argument with my abuela over what we think is actually going to happen. Um, and I think there's a lot of those conversations going on at home right now for Cuban-Americans. Did, did she Did she grow up there? She did. Um, she came... And she came right after the revolution. She came in 1961. So the majority of her life, she has lived in the United States at this point. But to, to kind of illustrate just how Cuban she has forever felt, she never became a U.S. citizen because she says she will die being Cuban. Um, so Abuela is very passionate about all things Cuba. And I will say she, who has obviously lived through these decades of, of being in exile, thinks that this moment is different. Um, and she is definitely calling me with lots of optimism. I would say just from everything I see and read, I have some more reserved feelings about it. But there's certainly a lot of feelings around what next. So the Biden administration has been very explicit in saying that Cuba policy is not a priority well, for them. Broadly speaking, um, our policy as it relates to Cuba is going to be governed by two principles. Uh, support for democracy and human rights will be at the core of our efforts through empowering the, and empowering the Cuban people to determine their own future. And second, our belief that Americans, especially Cuban Americans, are the best ambassadors for freedom and prosperity. I mean, uh, we've seen from the podium multiple times uh, the press secretary, Jen Psaki, say almost verbatim that, that, you know, Cuba policy is not a top foreign policy priority for President Biden. Uh, a Cuba policy shift uh, or additional steps is currently not among the president's top foreign policy priorities. Um, so they've spent the past six months leaving in place uh, Trump era sanctions, Trump's hardline policy on Cuba that was largely driven and, and the architects were um, Cuban Americans on the Hill, including folks like Senator Marco Rubio, Congressman Diaz-Balart. Uh, so it was very, you know, hardline Cuba policy that that Biden has opted to keep in place while they did a review of Cuba policy and assessed, you know, what restrictions would they necessarily want to lift? What sanctions would they want to leave in place? Uh -huh. But they hadn't done anything. You know, they had not changed anything. Everything is intact from the Trump administration. And to some extent, U.S. sanctions have exacerbated the situation in Cuba as well. So now we're seeing kind of the, the fallout and the consequence of, you know, everything that the dictatorship has done, as well as, you know, some of the, the sanctions from the United States. Yesterday, Cuban President Miguel Diaz-Canal accused demonstrators of being U.S. sellouts. Today, he blamed the 70-year-old U.S. trade embargo. Lift the blockade and we will see what our people are capable of. I think it's important to underscore that this is driven by the regime. This is driven by the dictatorship. But, you know, Cuba policy has also been very punitive toward the island under the Trump administration. So Biden is now finding himself in a position where he did not want to be. Uh, he did not want to have to be addressing Cuba at this moment in time, did not necessarily have a strategy or plan going forward for Cuba. Um, and now, you know, his advisors are finding themselves in the position of, okay, what is the best way to approach this? And so far, what we have seen is the administration put out a forceful statement. Biden put out on Monday a statement, you know, in support of peaceful protesting um, and, you know, condemning violence from the regime. 
but it just remains to be seen what concrete steps. It's very easy to put out a statement and say you're in support, but to actually show that support and to actually help create change in Cuba is a whole other question. Mm -hmm. So to some extent, too, we've seen some confusing messaging coming out of the Biden administration. I mean, in the hours when the the protest started, you know, the first person that we saw weigh in was uh, the State Department's acting assistant secretary for Western Hemispheric Affairs named Julie Chung. And, you know, she's been one of the, the primary people tweeting about this. And it was, you know, first she got criticism for tweeting saying, you know, that the protests were because of COVID when in fact they're obviously about much bigger issues than just COVID. Then, you know, she's tweeted kind of channeling the revolutionary spirit of, of Libertad for, for Cubans. Uh, so there's been some mixed messaging exactly from the Biden administration on how hard they want to go into supporting protesters and supporting regime change or how much they want to stay away from, you know, having a position other than saying that they're supportive of, you know, Cuba sovereignty and supportive of what the Cuban people want. What sort of response have we seen so far in the U.S. from, you know, both people and lawmakers to the protests and the Biden administration's stance in response? Almost across the board, I would say that we've seen support for, you know, the protesters, their support for the Cuban people. Now, what to do next, what to do beyond that is certainly where there is disagreement. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, some people more progressive say, you know, that the U.S. needs to focus on lifting the U.S. embargo that has had, you know, has been in place for decades and has had negative effects on Cuba and on the Cuban people. Uh, There's on the other side, you know, Republicans are saying we absolutely need to double down on the Trump era sanctions. There needs to be a response from the Biden administration that they will unequivocally keep it in place. Um, And, you know, so so it's it's easy to say that you support the Cuban people. The question is, what do you do? For the Cuban people. And there are some Cuban exiles that are going as radical as saying that they want military intervention. That is not on the table with the Biden administration. But there is just a question at this point of, is the Biden administration going to to double down and say, okay, we're going to keep these Trump era restrictions in place that have been designed to to create pressure on the Cuban regime, but in in effect have also created, you know, the conditions and and helped, you know, pressure, put pressure on the Cuban people as well? Or are they going to chart a different path? Um, So it really is a question right now of, to some extent, domestic politics and domestic interests. Uh, You know, Biden definitely relies on this issue. He listens to Senator Bob Mm -hmm. Menendez, who is a Cuban Democrat, senator, uh, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So Bob Menendez in this situation has a lot of sway and he is supportive of, of keeping the sanctions in place um, and, and is helping, you know, advise the administration a bit on, on what to do. Sabrina Rodriguez, thanks so much for talking with me. Yes, thanks for having me. Also today... President Biden has nominated former Senator Jeff Flake to serve as ambassador to Turkey, extending a high-profile diplomatic post to the anti-Trump Republican. Flake served as one of several prominent GOP surrogates for Biden during the 2020 presidential campaign alongside people like Cindy McCain, the widow of the late Senator John McCain. Flake and Cindy McCain were among those symbolically censured by Arizona's state Republican Party, 
for running afoul of former President Trump in the months after the election. Like Flake, McCain was also rewarded by the Biden administration for her support with a nomination to an ambassadorship, getting tapped to serve as representative to the UN Agencies for Food and Agriculture last month. And California's top labor official, Julie Su, has been confirmed as deputy labor secretary. The Senate voted along party lines in her favor yesterday, nearly three months after the HELP Committee approved her nomination. Asian American Pacific Islander advocates initially pushed hard for Biden to nominate Sue as labor secretary, citing concerns that his cabinet would not be diverse enough. But he instead named former Boston Mayor Marty Walsh, who had the support of both unions and businesses. GOP lawmakers, including some who voted to confirm Walsh, fiercely opposed Sue's nomination, grilling her at a hearing in March about concerns with unemployment insurance fraud and other issues in California during her time leading the state's Labor Department. Today's episode of Politico Dispatch included music composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you've been hearing and want to help us out, tell a friend to check out the show and press subscribe. I'm Jeremy Siegel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>